بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله حمدا كثيرا طيبا مباركا فيه مباركا عليه كما يحب ربنا ويرضى جل جلاله وعم نواله والصلاة والسلام على سيد الحبيب المصطفى صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد قال الله تبارك وتعالى في القرآن المجيد والفرقان الحميد وأنتم الأعلون إن كنتم مؤمنين صدق الله العظيم Nice to be here today to speak about this great personality صلاح الدين أيوبي رحمه الله What we want to do today we'll discuss the events before he came to the fore and also uh, maybe some characteristics uh, regarding him which we can try to benefit from because the purpose of this is not just to uh, view some kind of history but rather to try to see what made him who he was and how we can maybe find parallels uh, with, with that and to try to benefit inshallah because th- that should be the purpose for which we listen to anything because uh, the situation that we have now, uh, definitely there's a lot of parallels to what Salahuddin was facing when he first started. And I think there's going to be several things that we can, inshallah, uh, gain from this, inshallah, uh, when we listen to this story. It's up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at the end of the day, but we can have a desire and uh, a dream and an ambition and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will inshallah accept us for uh, with that ambition to hopefully get us somewhere so we can't start Salahuddin uh, until we speak about his predecessors because the ground was laid for what Salahuddin could do by some of his predecessors so what exactly happened is the the lands of Islam after having the, the glorious Abbasid Caliphate. See, after the Prophet ﷺ departed this world, eventually after the four Khalifs, then we had uh, Muawiyah radiallahu anhu. That was then eventually followed by the Umayyads. The rule was under the Umayyad dynasty. That lasted until about 132 years after the migration, which is called 132 Hijri. Right, the 132 years after migration. The Umayyads were then deposed and the Abbasids took over. The Abbasids were descendants of Abbas, عنه, the uncle of the Prophet. So they remained Khalifs of the entire Muslim world for about 500 years, from 132 Hijri to about 600 and something following this period but while they were the sole rulers in the beginning of all the areas under them Harun al-Rashid you may have heard of him right eventually after about 200 after about 200 years that was their glorious period 100 to 200 years but then after that they started to stagnate so while they were maintained as the Khalifs in Baghdad they're the ones who actually established the city of Baghdad. It didn't exist in the time of the Prophet 
It was the Abbasids after 132, the second Khalif, Abu Ja'far al-Mansur of the Abbasids, he established the city of Baghdad. It then became probably one of the greatest cities of the Muslim world. I mean, it was the Darul Khilafah, the, the center of the Caliphate. They ruled the whole world from there, meaning the whole Islamic world, that's where they ruled it from. But slowly, slowly, their influence waned. And many other smaller dynasties crept up in different parts of the world, of the Muslim world. They would be allied to the Abbasids. The Abbasids were the, still the Khalifs in Baghdad. But those areas were ruled by the Ghaznavids. So you had the Samanids up in the Uzbekistan area. Though they were affiliated to the Abbasids, the Abbasids were the Khalif. But that area was ruled by them. Then you had Khawarizm Shah, the Khawarizmis. Uh, eventually you had the Ghaznawids, the Seljuks, the Mamluks. They maintained the Khalif down there. It was only after the Ottomans, after actually the sack of Baghdad by the Mongols, which is going to happen soon, after Salahuddin, rahimahullah, that the last Khalif was, was killed. And then after that, they say that the Ottomans, who had arisen after that, uh, while they were sultans, they then became officially the caliphs as well when that caliphate or such was transferred. Now, there's a big discussion about that. But to be the, the Abbasids were there for about 600 year, uh, 500 years. And during this time, there was another major dynasty that was not under the Abbasids, that didn't like the Abbasids. That was the Fatimid dynasty. Now, the big difference was the Abbasids the main orthodox Sunnis, the Fatimids were Shia, an Ismaili Shia group, right? Uh, and they had Egypt, parts of North Africa, right? And uh, they, they were over 200 years, they ruled Egypt for. Azhar, the university, was actually started by them. In fact, Cairo was founded by them, even though that area was first conquered by Amr ibn al anhu. He was the conqueror of Egypt. But later, as a city, they had a small garrison towns, but as a major city, Cairo was actually established by the Fatimid Empire. But they were eventually overtaken, and Salahuddin took over Egypt after a very long time, and that was a big favor that he did to a lot of people by doing that. So, initially what happened is that while this is going on in the Muslim world, there's quite a few rivalries and a lot of other problems that are going on in the Muslim world. Uh, after the weakening of the Abbasids, the Crusaders, they had been overcome, meaning the Christian world had been overcome. Most of their holy places had come under Muslim rule, including Jerusalem. Right? So including Jerusalem, Palestine, many of these areas had come under Islamic rule. So they were extremely up in arms about this. They were always planning to take it back. That was the Byzantine Empire. So, they had a lot of vengeance in their heart to try to take it back. So they tried to, many of these states, they uh, tried to uh, consolidate their forces to try to come and take, out, uh, take, down, uh, take back their, their lands. However, uh, until now they couldn't do it because the Muslims were very powerful. Now, this is around the time when the Seljukid Empire, which was, one of, which was a very powerful empire, they're the precursors of the Ottomans. 
The Ottomans are from the same forefathers as the Seljuks, they're Turkic group. So the Seljuks had actually now been uh, weakened extremely, right, after one of their main uh, leaders. So when this happened, some of the Christian world, they decided that this is going to be the right time to try to get back their lands. There were a number of people involved in this to try to rally the Christian forces, the Christian people, the Christian leaders around. The whole of Christendom, again, same thing. It was actually split up. They had different rulers. The Christian world was not necessarily under one, though they had a pope who was very, very powerful. So the first crusade, they started their march eastward towards Syria. Syria, which was under the Muslim rule at the time. So uh, Syria had been under Muslim rule for a very long time. Damascus, the Umayyads had actually made that. Before the Abbasids, the Umayyads actually made Damascus their center of caliphate. So that's older than Baghdad itself. right? Um, so they marched towards Syria. That started around 490 Hijri. Right? So that's 490 Hijri, which is around 11, just before, uh, around 10 something. Right, around 10-something. Already, the Seljuks have had this major victory right, uh, in a place called Manzikart, where the Byzantines lost a huge battle. That's like remembered like all the time. Right? They've had their glor- glory, the Seljuks, the Muslim Seljuks. And then after that, the Mongols have come in and started causing havoc already, right, before their onslaught of Baghdad. But in two years from 490 Hijri, which is just before the 1100s of Gregorian, as you may be used to, like that's, uh, you can say about a thousand years ago, right? Um, So in two years, they took many of the major cities. So Antioch, which is today in Turkey, Antakya, Antioch. Uh, Sorry, if you guys are not into geography, I mean, I'm going to have to try to help, but I really enjoy this stuff. Antioch is in Turkey, right? Uh, Edessa, which is in Urfa, it's called Shanli Urfa right now, it's a royal city of Urfa in Turkey, it's an amazing city, I've actually been for a conference down there, it's in southern Turkey, and many other fortresses, they, they took over and they started controlling them. By 492, so in two years, Christians finally actually regained Jerusalem itself. Now when you're disparate, when you're disunited, the Muslims lost Jerusalem. Now, they lost a lot of other areas, but Jerusalem was the big one. Right? So to lose Jerusalem was for them a really big deal. Within a few years, the greater part of Palestine, like current-day Palestine, Syria, a uh, number of other areas in Lebanon, etc., in that Middle Eastern area, they were taken. So essentially, Stanley Lane Poole, who is a biographer of Salahuddin, I mean, he's a Christian, but he's a biographer, he's written a wonderful biography of Salahuddin, right? with a lot of facts in there. He says that the Christians, they finally, the Christian world, they wedged themselves in for some time. And they basically, you can say, split the Muslim Ummah, right? In some of their main lands. They didn't have Makkah, Medina, they didn't have Arabia, but in terms of the Middle East, they had split. The capture of Jerusalem made them very excited. Brought them into a frenzy, that's what they say. And basically gave rise to their wildest passions. We've got, we've got uh, Jerusalem now, so that's it. We've got um, 
you know, we've got the main area that we wanted. Now they set their eyes on a number of other places. When they took over Jerusalem, now this is the interesting part, that when they took over Jerusalem, they did it in a very, very wild way. It's one of the worst massacres before the Mongols, I guess. So, so terrible, I'm going to just report to you from the Encyclopedia Britannica, right, what it quotes about this massacre. So terrible, it is said, was the carnage which followed that the horses of the crusaders who rode up to the mosque of Umar were knee-deep in the stream of blood. I thought that when I had read this a long time ago, I read this a long time ago, about 10, 15 years ago, I thought that was an exaggeration. Like, okay, maybe it's an exaggeration. Now, if you've been to Jerusalem, you've been to the old city of Jerusalem, you'll see that it's actually possible because the streets are actually very, very narrow. Right? In the broad streets here, you need a lot of blood. Right? But in narrow streets, I mean, uh, that, that's a, I mean, even here it's a possibility. It just depends on you know, how many people you kill, but they kill a lot of people. So they were, knee, uh, they were knee deep in the stream of blood. Infants were seized by their feet and dashed against the walls. Or whirled over the battlements. While the Jews were all burnt alive in the synagogue. So the Muslims and Jews who used to be living together, they were both massacred. Right? When they came into Jerusalem, when the, Christians came, the Crusaders came into Jerusalem. On the next day, I mean, as though that wasn't enough, on the next day it says, the horrors of that which had preceded was deliberately repeated again. On a much larger scale, Tancred, who uh, was one of the influential leaders at the time, he'd actually given a guarantee of safety to at least 300 people, like a special guarantee, giving them his flag, giving them his flag. But no, these guys had no mercy. Despite all his protests and everything, even those people were killed. These guys just wanted to just eliminate everybody. The bodies of men, women and children were hacked and cut up until their fragments just lay on the ground. And eventually they got what they say the Saracens to eventually come and clean it all up. So that's happened when Jerusalem was taken from the Muslims. Now... The fall of Jerusalem obviously meant the decline of the Islamic empire, Islamic world actually, Islamic rule. And uh, the Christians were really, really, uh, they, they became established. There were four kingdoms that were established then. That of Jerusalem, Edessa, Antioch and Tripoli. So there's four main ones in those areas. And... They got some really, really strategic areas that exposed the Muslim world to annihilation. That this is going to be very tough. Because when you've just split everybody up, it's very difficult for them to consolidate power. <coughs> just remember one thing, if you study the history of the Muslims, or any empire for that matter, but especially for Muslims, the weakest we've ever been, despite individual strengths, is when we've been disunited. It is the most strategic way of controlling the Muslims is to keep them disunited, right? By basically befriending every influential country and just getting them, you know, to uh, worry about theirs. And subhanAllah, we've got people out there with a lot of money to their countries, a lot of money, but a lot of that money is sitting in the UK and in America, 
in Wall Street and so on. They do anything, your accounts get frozen. It's a bit of a difficult one, but I'm not here to, you know, be pessimistic here, I'm trying to create some optimism. But disunity is one of the biggest things. That's why I try to work with others as far as possible. Even in your small, you know, small areas. So listen, I mean, it's easy to blame the big rulers of the world, uh, the, the heads of countries. But if we can't even do this at home, if we can't even do this in our little circles of influence, then how do you expect people in bigger positions where there's a lot more pressures to do it there? So we really need to try to uh, create unity because that's exactly what Salahuddin did eventually. Rahimahullah. The Crusaders became extremely excited such that there was a Reginald of Chatillon of France. He once even expressed the desire that we're going to take over Makkah and Medina. Munawwara. And to take out the body of the Prophet Never before this time, for those glorious several hundred years, that such was ever even thought of. Because this was after the, you know, the apex of uh, their height. Their height. Now, after the opening of the 6th century, which is uh, the end of Malik Shah's reign. Malik Shah was one of the greatest of the Seljuk leaders. After him, Sultan Alauddin tried to do great. I mean, if any of you know the precursor of the Ottomans, uh, uh, what's his name, Arturul. Right? He was around the time of Sultan Alauddin. But the glorious period of Seljuks had already passed, which was about 50 to 100 years before that. That was where Malik Shah was the, was the, uh, was the Sultan. Right? Alauddin tried his best, but then after that, it just got messed up, and then they became a vassal state of the Mongols. So they were literally controlled by the Mongols. The Mongols allowed them to continue, but they had to just do whatever the Mongols said. That's why then the Ottomans came up separately and just dominated everything eventually. But at that same time, you had a number of others, a number of other dynasties in the Muslim world as well. Right? You're about to see the beginning of the Ayyubid dynasty. You had the Mamluks and a number of others. Right? While you still had the Khalif in Baghdad. Right? So now what happens is, it's just so much information, we have a very short amount of time. I'm just wondering how much to tell you, how much not to tell you, and I hope I'm not confusing you as well. Right? Now what happens is that at this critical time when the whole Muslim world is feeling the brunt of the loss of Jerusalem and the loss of a number of other areas and this disunity and all the rest of it, right? you suddenly see that there's a star that rises. Right? There's a champion that comes from an unexpected quarter. Right? And that is a person called Imaduddin Zangi. Imaduddin Zangi. Right? He was the son of a court chamberlain of Malik Shah. So basically this is coming out of the Seljuks. So there's a court chamberlain for Malik Shah who is a Seljuk leader. His son is this, uh, is this Imaduddin Zengi. That's his name. It's Turkic background. Uh, Sultan Mahmud of the time had confirmed on him, had given him the government of Mosul to take care of. Mosul is in? Where's Mosul? It's in? It's in Iraq. So that was the area that he was looking after. Right? 
And he managed to cons uh, consolidate the forces in that area of Syria and Iraq. So mashallah, he managed to get a lot of influence there, bring everybody together. And he advanced towards one of those crusader forts now that had been taken from the Muslims in Edessa, in Edessa, which is Urfa, right, in Turkey. That was a major stronghold of the Christians and mashallah, he managed to take it in 539 Hijri. He managed to take it. 539, just to give you an idea, Ghazali has just passed away in 505 Hijri. This is when Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani is uh, now in Baghdad, right? This is now, his period is going to begin in Baghdad, right? In terms of scholarship. This conquest, after all of that, uh, all, all of those defeats, was considered in Arabic the Fathul Futuh, the victory of all victories, right? Gave you some hope now. After this, this helped to save the Euphrates valley and unfortunately then he was assassinated by a slave in 541 so two years after he took over he was assassinated you have a history of that as well right however his son was Nuruddin they called him al-malik al-adil malik in arabic i just want to get this because i had this confusion before malik means the king generally in arabic right However, under the Seljuks and the Turkic tribes and dynasties, Malik was a prince. The Sultan was the king. So Sultan was the ruler, his sons and so on, they were the Maliks. Right? Or anybody else, they were the Maliks. The royal princes were Maliks. He became known as Al-Malik Al-Adil, the just prince. Adil means the just prince. Nurdin. He took up his father's cause in 541. Now, this Nuruddin Zangi, rahimahullah, is actually referred to as Nuradinus by some Orientalists as well. Right? He became the Sultan of Aleppo, or the leader of Aleppo, after his father. And for him, jihad with the Crusaders right, was the greatest act of piety. Right? That's what the historians say. So in 559, he went and captured another area called Harim, right, in the north. And that's where he actually defeated the united armies of the Franks and the Greeks. 10,000 Christians were slain in that battle. So that was a huge battle. So now you can see that there's victories are coming. Innumerable, innumerable, innumerable crusaders were taken as pre prisoners and they lost a lot of their big people. Um, I don't know if these names mean anything to you, but, you know... Uh, the Bohemond, the Prince of Antioch, Raymond of the Court of Tripoli, Jocelyn III, the Greek gen general, Duke of Calamar, and all of these places. And soon a number of others, forts, because in those days it was forts, and then you control that area around, a number of other forts fell to Nuruddin. So he's laying down this, uh, he's laying down the grounds for this to happen. Eventually, he managed to outnumber them in Palestine, outmaneuver them in Palestine. So finally now he's taking parts of Palestine as well. So they're getting closer to Jerusalem. Right? Jerusalem was still the coveted price. So a number of the areas around, they'd managed to take. But this wasn't going to happen under Nuruddin. 
This was saved for Salahuddin, Rahimahullah. So finally, Nuruddin dies in 569 Hijri. He was only 56 years of age. And news of his death obviously felt like a thunderbolt among the Saracens. This is what Stanley Lane Poole says. Because mashallah, he'd been able to gain so much victory and suddenly he died. Is everybody following so far? Is there any confusion? Because history can be complicated. Once you start reading more and more, you start filling in the gaps and you start making the... You know. But Muslims don't know their history. This is really unfortunate. So they get really depressed and they're waiting for Mahdi to come to sort it all out. But if you actually read history, you'll see that there's been so many ups and downs. And I think this is just another down we're in. We're going to go back up soon. Inshallah. Right? So I want to give that hope today. Because I really believe in it. I don't believe their judgment is around the corner. I don't believe that Mahdi is going to come anytime soon. Right? If he comes, alhamdulillah, but I'd rather he doesn't come. I'd rather that we sort it out. Because we've got our deaths to worry about that are much closer to than any Mahdi radiallahu anh, that could come. Right. Now what happens is, Nuruddin, you know, okay, he does all of these battles and you know, he takes back these lands and so on. He was a person of a certain character, certain personality, which made him, which allowed him to be. You know, because you have to have a number of things. You can't, you can't just be a good strategist. You know, you have to keep people going. For that you need generosity, you need kindness, you need justice. Otherwise, your own people will turn against you. You know, you can't take over a place with just yourself, right? With a few of your friends. You need a force. How do you keep the force together? How do you make allies? How do you bring people together? All of that is required. It's a lot more complicated than people think. Right? So, he was, some of the character that's mentioned about him, he was chivalrous, just, Generous, tender-hearted, pious, of course high-minded, and a fearless warrior. He exposed himself to every battle. They did not sit at the back and just send in generals. They were there in the, at the forefront. Ibn al-Athir, Ibn al-Athir was one of our great historians. So we have a number of famous historians. Ibn Asakir is one of them. I'm just going to shoot out the name just so that you've heard of them. Because right? you hear about a lot of other stuff, don't you? So why not hear about some Muslim historians? Um, Ibn Asakir, Ibn Al-Athir, Ibn Al-Jawzi, Ibn Kathir. These are great historians. You might hear their names for other things as well, because they were masters of many subjects at that time. But these are some of our famous ones. Like if you ever want to study history, these are some of the original texts written by these people. Right? So Ibn Al-Athir says that I have studied the rulers of the past, meaning from the time of the Prophet down to this time. Aside from the four khalifs, right, who have their celebrated position, everybody accepts, and Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, right, he's, he's well known, I'm sure everybody's heard of him. No one yet was as pious and as just as Nuruddin. Now that's his observation, could be subjective, right, but he's saying from the time of the Prophet, aside from the four khalifs and Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, there were others who were pious and so on. There were, you know, there's been the good and bad, but he really was the most pious. That's what he reckons. And Allah knows best. But, I mean, he must have something for that to be said about him. He spent his own money. He abolished the taxes in the land because this was a big issue, right? Taxes, you just, just put taxes on people 
and you make them suffer. This is what the bad rulers did, even Muslim bad rulers. That's what they did. He was into his night prayers. He studied fiqh and jurisprudence. These people were into studies as well. They actually studied. Salahuddin studied. He had quite a bit of knowledge. This was really interesting of the rulers of the past. They would actually have time to have special teachers to teach them. That they would call atabays, they would be called. Or they were actually taught as young princes. Right? Um, that's really interesting. I don't know about today. You've had very few of those who really know their stuff. Yeah, I think what I'm going to do is I'm actually just going to move into Salahuddin now. Because now Nuruddin has passed away. Uh, we could spend a bit of time talking about Nuruddin, but just move on Salahuddin. Salahuddin is considered to be the miracle now. But you know, for a miracle to happen, you need to prepare the ground. So, Imaduddin and Nuruddin, rahimahumullah, have laid the ground, done the groundwork. Now, what happens is Salahuddin, rahimahullah, is that he was brought up. He was Kurdish now. He was not Turkic. Uh, what's really interesting is that. Most of the dynasties of the past, most of the rules, the caliphates, the um, rulers of the past and their uh, dynasties and so on, most of them I would say have been Turkic, like most of them, Turkic origin. One has been Kurdish, which is the Salahuddin, because he left his sons, unfortunately there was division among them afterward, they took different areas. But they became the Ayyubid Empire afterwards. But they're Kurdish. They're Kurds. The Mamluks were Turkic. Both Circassian and the others. Turkic origin or Circassian origin. The Seljuks were the Ghaznavids. The Arabs were the Abbasids, the Umayyads, the two big, big ones. And then the Fatimids, they were Arabs as well. And maybe one or two other small ones in uh, Andalusia in, uh, in Spain, the Umayyad continued there and so on. But the others, or then you had the Berbers from North Africa. They held that as well. But otherwise the biggest that we know about, after the main Abbasid and Umayyads, were actually the Turkic. Turkic, right? And that meant Seljuks, the Mamluks, and uh, what do you call it, the Ottomans, which was the largest one, the Turks. Then you had Muhammad Ali Basha in Egypt, who was actually Albanian, right? So everybody's had a fair share, right? Or a bit of a share in all of this, subhanAllah. So he was brought up like any other normal Kurdish youth at that time, right? That time was a time of indulgence. There was a lot of money, I think, and there was a lot of indulgence. So people drank as well, and it says that he used to drink as well. Why do I highlight that point? Because it goes to show that even if you're a sinner, you know, you could have good things in store for you. That's the lesson I take from that. When I read that, I was like, I used to drink, like, you know. And then you th think, well, you know, uh, this isn't the time of the Sahaba. There were problems. His father was known to drink as well. It was a common, I don't, I don't want to say it's a common thing, but people used to drink as they do now. As some people do now. Normal youth, right? He studied the conventional sciences and warfare. Nobody could have predicted, that biographers say that nobody could have predicted that he was going to be the conqueror of Jerusalem. And then he was going to go down in history that there was going to be a lecture about him in November of 2021 in Oxford University on Salahuddin. Like, would he have imagined? Would anybody have imagined that? That's really something to think about. 
probably didn't even know Oxford existed. I don't even know if Oxford did exist. See what I'm saying? And yet, he was just like any other youth at the time. Who knows, there might be somebody who is now studying at Oxford University. But in a hundred years, they're going to be remembered for something great. It's not beyond the law, is it, to let that happen. But you can just sit there and say, that's not me, man. I've got my PlayStation 5. I've just managed to get it. Sorry, I'm not trying to put anybody down, but I mean, this is the way a lot of people think. But you guys don't even, you're in Oxford, you don't think like that, do you? You guys are like really studious and, mashallah, inshallah, alhamdulillah. Right? Nobody could have predicted that he would capture first Egypt. Right? So he took, he didn't capture Egypt. What happened was, he actually was sent to Egypt by Nuruddin. He didn't want to go. He's like, I don't want to go there. He was sent there to try to help out one of the viziers or one of the governors under the Fatimids. So he actually worked under the Fatimids first. And then he was actually elected as a minister, probably the first Sunni minister to be elected by the Fatimid, the Shia dynasty. They were at loggerheads with the Sunnis. But because he had been able to deal with the crusaders that were also had incursions into the Fatimid lands, and he managed to thwart that, he was actually eventually made a minister. And the Fatimid Khalif at the time, they had their own Fatimid Khalif. Right? After he died, Salahuddin managed to just take over and take him on a different track. Egypt then turned away from Shiism to, Sun to become Sunni. And that's where it's been until now. Right? Lane Poole, the biographer, says about his youth that as the favoured governor's son, he naturally enjoyed a privileged position. But far from exhibiting any kind of symptom of future greatness, he was a, he had a bit of tranquil virtue, but nobody could have guessed that he was going to be the conqueror. God had destined him to be the greatest leader of his time. And God provides a mean thereof. Nuruddin told him to go to Egypt, but he didn't want to go. So he was forced to go, but as the verse of the Quran says, Asa and Takrahu Shayan, khayrun lakum. You know, sometimes you may dislike something, but it actually turns out to be in your greatest interest. So I've told you what happened. Now, when he became the minister and so on, he transformed his life. He became serious. After assuming the power in Egypt, his conviction in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala strengthened. Sometimes when you're put into a position of responsibility, that's when you become serious. Right? Until then, you, you know, people don't take matters seriously. He decided that the dunya, the world, and all of its indulgences that he was until now used to, he says all of that is going to be a hindrance because he accepted his mission. That I need to do a mission. Right? I've got a lot, a lot further to go. So he decided to cut out everything and to basically shun all of the normal indulgences that people would. So, Lane Poole says, for example, that his entire focus became to unite the Muslims. Because he saw the problem, that this is what the problem was. Now, he had just managed to take over the Fatimids and make them into Sunnis. That was a huge, after 200 and something years, that was a massive accomplishment. So now he wanted to bring everybody else together. 
to confront the Crusaders because that was their biggest enemy at the time. Right? He said that I was given Egypt by Allah and he wants me to have Jerusalem as well. So he had his sight on Jerusalem to take it back. I mean, he's just accomplished a major deal. So that's another accomplishment that he wants to do, right? And that's, what, that's the way the world works. You do a small accomplishment, you want to do a bigger one. You, that's how you get brave, right? That's psychologically, that's how things work in this world. But if you're not going to take on that first step, I'm telling you this from experience. If you don't take that first step, you don't write your first book, you can't write any subsequent books. Right? It seems like, wow, I'm going to write a book. And you write the first book, and the second book, Mashallah, you have five ideas, right? So it's in everything else, it's like that as well. Your first piece of homework, then the second homework, does it become easier? Man, I hated homework, I hated writing essays, man. That's just tough. Anyway, now I make people write essays. Sounds on the, alhamdulillah, feels good. Inshallah, you guys will be doing that soon as well. After you've written your essays here, you'll be getting other guys to write essays, inshallah. So he changed when assuming power in Egypt, and as I mentioned. Now what happened is that he first won a huge battle. What put him on the map now for the Crusaders is that he won a massive battle against them in a place in Palestine today called Hattin, or Hittin, right near the river Tiberias. Massive battle. And he managed to... It was a very hotly contested battle against the Crusaders. And after a series of fights and so on, this was in 583. That was the death blow to the Crusaders. Uh, Lane Poole, he describes this victory. Salahuddin camped on the battle, on the field of battle. Actually, I could have shared it with you. Um, So after the battle, after he won this major battle, he had a tent pitched down there and he ordered the prisoners to be brought to him. So the king of Jerusalem, the Reginald of Chatillon, which is considered the lord of Karak. Karak is in Jordan today. Uh, Similar to that, it's uh, it's by the area where, you know, the three Sahaba are buried, Ja'far. Uh, Zaid radiallahu anhu and so on they, they, uh, it was that battle that they won down there and they all buried there if you go to Jordan a lot of people go there to uh, see that so that's Karak that area he received them in his tent he seated the king close to him he liked the king the king was half decent of Jerusalem right? he was a decent guy it looks like from what, you, from what he did seeing his thirst he gave him a cup of water iced in snow he drank some and then he passed it over to the other guy, the Lord of Karak. Salahuddin got very visibly annoyed. I gave you, not him. So then he got up and he went to that Reginald of Chatillon and he said, Twice I've sworn to kill this man. Once when he sought to invade the holy cities, meaning Makkah Mukarrah, he's the guy who wanted Makkah and Medina Munawra. So Salahuddin made a pledge then that I want to take this guy down. And second is when he took that Hajj caravan by treachery. Right? What had happened was that you know, they, they were innocent people, but he'd killed, he, he, he massacred them. So Salahuddin had uh, really felt uh, this. And uh, 
He had said, Lo, I will avenge Muhammad upon you, he said that at the time. He then drew out his sword and he cut him down his own hand straight away. The guard finished it and dragged the body out of the tent. This is Stanley Lane Poole's version of this. Right? It's a bit glory, a bit gory, but yeah. The king began to tremble because when he saw this, he thinking, that's my end as well. But Salahuddin reassured him. It's not the custom of kings to slay kings, he said. But that man, he transgressed all bounds. So what happened has happened now. According to Ibn Shaddad's version, before the execution, he actually said, you know, be, be a Muslim. But the guy was, refused to do it. He gave him a chance, but he refused to do it. And then he finished him off. Right? Not that you repeat this stuff here, okay? Um... I have to just carry some crazy people and then I don't know who's watching, who's saying and what they're going to say. I mean, let's guys come here to, you know, you have to be careful nowadays, right? Now, the victory of Hittin was extremely, was a prelude to the more coveted conquest of Jerusalem. And Ibn Shaddad, he's, He's a very close associate of his, and he's written a biography, and he's been translated into English as well, in India. It's, I don't know how good the translation is, but it's been translated. There's two really good books on Salah. One is by him, Ibn Shaddad, and the other one is by Stanley Lane Poole, who's a Christian. So they're really, if you really want to read more about him, you can do that. So Ibn Shaddad says that the Sultan was so keen for Jerusalem that the hills would have shrunk from bearing the burden he carried in his heart. Like You have to have that kind of desire to get something done. So on Friday the 27th of Rajab, right, which is generally the Mi'raj night, you know, the ascension of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam night, this was the 2nd of October, 1187, after a full 90 years, it was actually 91 years because Jerusalem had been taken from 492, that's when the Muslims lost it, until 583, so that was just over 90 years, 91 years he'd been lost. Right now we still have Jerusalem. We lost it for 90 something years. That's why when people get really, you should get upset, but when they get despondent with the situation in Jerusalem right now, Alhamdulillah we still have it. There we lost it completely. To such a degree that the masjid was desecrated. The Musalla Marwani next to it is used as stables. The dome of the rock had a cross placed on top of it, right? And you saw the massacre that took place already in there. That's what happened for 90 years. So alhamdulillah, where it's better than before. That's why I said history really helps to us to put things in perspective. So on this Friday, the 27th of Rajab is when he managed to take Jerusalem back, right? So the Crusaders, they lost Jerusalem. Ibn Shaddad gives a graphic account of this, and let me just explain that to you. He said it was the victory of victories. A large, a large crowd, they got together, and he says that everybody came. Hardly any noteworthy person of the empire was left behind. The joyful shouts of Allahu Akbar rent the skies. After 90 years, Friday prayer was again held in Jerusalem. The cross that had glittered on the dome of the rock was pulled down. 
an indescribable event as it was. The blessings of and help of Allah were witnessed everywhere on that day. Now, 20 years before that, Nuruddin Zangi during his life had designed a pulpit, a member for Jerusalem. Subhanallah, made of some special wood and everything. This was finally brought from Aleppo, right, from Halab in Syria. And it was erected there in the masjid. I think it was about 30 years ago that this guy, one of the settlers or somebody, went and put it on fire. That's why you don't ha I, don't, I don't think you've got that, that uh, special pulpit. It was very sentimental. Right? It was lost. Now, you remember the story of how they entered Jerusalem in the beginning, the Crusaders? When Salahuddin enters, rahimahullah, the forbearance, the humanity, the magnanimity, the Islamic character exhibited at this occasion has to be, you know, it's worth hearing. And we're going to hear it from Lane Poole, who's a Christian biographer. So it's not a biased, you know, account. He says, Never did Salahuddin show himself to be greater than during this memorable surrender. His guards, commanded by responsible emirs, kept orders in every street and prevented violence and insult in so much that no ill usage of the Christians, uh, no ill treatment of the Christians was ever heard of. Every exit was in his hands. He had control. And... So people had to ransom themselves and they were free to go wherever they wanted and so on. Then it mentions that whoever couldn't pay whoever was poor, that they could go for free. So he actually even allowed the patriarch and the Balian of Ibelin and others to free people as well. Just, I mean, you hear this like uh, the conquest of Makkah. Similar kind of thing that happened there where the Prophet said, whoever goes into house of Abu Sufyan, the leader of the Quraysh at that time, enemy, right? But now he says, whoever enters his house, he is safe. Thus did the Saracens show mercy to the fallen city. This is what Stanley Lane Poole says. One recalls the savage conquest by the first crusaders in 1099, when Godfrey and Tancred rode through the streets, choked with the dead and dying, when defenseless Muslims were tortured, burnt and shot down in cold blood on the towers and roofs of the temple, when the blood of wanton massacre defiled the honor of... So he's saying that they actually defiled the honor of Christendom. This was not a Christian thing to do. And they stained the scene where once the gospel of love and mercy had been preached. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy was a forgotten beatitude when the Christians made shambles of the holy city. He's telling them off. Fortunate were the mercy, merciless, for they obtained mercy at the hands of the Muslim Sultan. That's why he says, then there's a poem he says, he says, the greatest attribute of heaven is mercy, and tis the crown of justice and the glory, where it may kill with right, but to save with pity. Then he says that if taking Jerusalem were the only known fact about Salahuddin, Saladin, he says, it would be enough to prove him to be the most chivalrous and great-hearted conqueror of his own age and perhaps any age. This is this uh, Stanley Lane Poole who's saying this. Right? 
After that, there was a third crusade. When they took Jerusalem, the crusaders, they tried to rally everybody together. And they came and, you know, they encamped in different areas. And then for the next five years, there was a lot of skirmishes between them. Eventually, everybody got tired. So they made agreements, right, that finally Salahuddin will be the ruler of Jerusalem. And they'll move away. They got a bit of a sliver of land from, Ak from Akka, Akre, right, which is on... The, uh, on the coast of Palestine today and a sliver of land there otherwise you know the, the, the Salahuddin takes the rest of it and this was a huge victory for the, for the Muslims so now Salahuddin then on the 27th of Safar 589 Hijri which is 4th of March in 1193 he died in the, he was only 57 when he died We're going to now try to just explore and understand some of his characteristic and how he dealt with things. So I'm going to invoke his biographer, Ibn Shaddad. He says, it was the night of the 27th of Safar and the 12th day since he had fallen ill. Right? He'd been ill for 12 days, uh, 11 days. The Sultan's illness took a serious turn. He became too weak by then. There was a sheikh of the local madrasa who had been requested to come and read Quran by him. Because he was, uh, last three, four days, he was actually unconscious. He would only become conscious once in a while. Right? He says, Sheikh Abu Ja'far was sitting by his bedside reciting the Quran while the Sultan had lay unconscious for last three days, regaining his consciousness only for brief intervals. And then the Sheikh Abu Ja'far, uh, he read the verse, that's when Salahuddin opened his eyes and he says, indeed, that is true, that is correct. After this, his soul departed. Now, that's amazing. Maybe we can have it as well that we're on our deathbed and the Quran is being recited and we can confirm you know, a statement in the Quran and then that's our last words. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us that kind of death as well. It was the day of death, he says, for the Muslims was a major misfortune. And he says that since they'd been deprived of the four khalifs, it felt like this was the most uh, greatest loss that they had borne. Right? The fort, the city, the entire world appeared to be lamenting over his death. Now, Shaddad says, this Qadi, he says that, you know, before when I've been told and I've heard of others that there's people who have longed to offer their lives so that somebody else could live. You know, you hear about that written, I'm willing to give my life so that you can get five more years in your life, you know, whatever it is. He said, I'd heard that before. I thought it was a figure of speech. But I learned on the day that this Sultan died that it could really happen. For I myself was one of those who would have gladly parted with their lives if there had been the slightest possibility of saving the life of the Sultan by our sacrifice. Now, the Sultan died, right? He was a Sultan, he had everything under his command. But when he died, he left nothing except one dinar and 47 dirhams. One dinar, gold coin, and 47 silver coins. Now, I could give you a value of it today, but I don't know if it equates to the same, right? That's all he had. He did not leave any houses, goods, property, 
gardens or anything else. In fact, he did not have even enough to cover his funeral expenses. They were met by obtaining a loan on his name and his shroud was provided by a minister called Qadi al-Fadil. You really have to cut away from everything. You can enjoy, I mean, he, he was probably eating food and everything, but he didn't have any personal property. So he's, he's an official, so he's living probably in a palace or whatever, in a tent, I don't know, right? In a royal place or whatever it is, but he's getting his food and everything, but he doesn't own anything. He's just using because that's, you know, he's an, he, he's an official, so he can use it. said that, uh, according to an, a biography, he says that he once said, I have not performed a single congregational prayers alone for the past several years. Like, never missed a jama'ah. Always in congregation. It's like the last time, when did we pray in congregation sometimes? That's the question we ask today. But he hardly missed it. Even during his illness, he would send for the imam and force himself to stand up and perform the prayer behind him. He also did the tahajjud at night, the voluntary prayers at night. If he couldn't do them at night because he couldn't wake up or whatever, he would do them in the morning. He would pray additional rakats in the morning after sunrise. Interestingly, the zakat never became incumbent on him. He was never obligated to pay zakat. Because he never had any extra property. Whatever he would get, he'd probably give away anyway. And boundless in generosity, he gave away whatever he used to have. Like he used to just give, because I mean, you're the ruler. You, there's lots of people that are going to come to you, right? Uh, in those days, that's what used to happen. They used to actually come to you, and you have to say, okay, give him so much, or give him so much. And he would give his own stuff as well, his own property. At the time of his death, we, we already learned what he left. He once said that I can, you know, I can never keep money. Just. Just give it away. There's one sheikh I heard about who uh, used to give away a lot of his money. But one year what he did was he kept aside, like equivalent to about 350 pounds, for a year so he could pay zakat. Like, let me at least once pay zakat and get the reward of this honorable act. Otherwise he would never have to do it because he never had enough money. He used to delight in listening to the Qur'an. He loved it when people, he would call people to read, read the Qur'an. He would do it in the battlefield. In fact, what he would do in the battlefield, he would have people read hadith. Once somebody told him that it's a great idea that when you're actually in the middle of the fight, listen to hadith. So he had somebody read hadith at that time. Just loved the words of the Prophet ﷺ. When he listened to the Qur'an, tears would trickle down his cheeks. Now, towards the end, it says that uh, when... Once in Jerusalem, which then lay almost helpless before the besieging crusaders after they'd taken in that third crusade time. So the crusaders were outside and it was quite a vulnerable situation. The Sultan, it was a cold winter night before Friday when I was alone with the Sultan. We spent the whole night in prayer and supplication. Late after midnight, I requested the Sultan to take a little rest. But when he means I, after Maghrib we spent the night, after midnight I told him, you go and take, you know, have a little rest. He replied, I think you want to sleep, right? You go and take a nap. After a short while, when I went, woke up for the dawn prayer, 
morning Fajr prayer, which we used to perform together, he says, I found him washing his hands and feet, making wudu. And he said, I didn't sleep at all, he said. After the prayer was over, I said, I have, I have an idea which may be of benefit. He told him to do a special prayer in Masjid Al-Aqsa and so on. And inshallah, Allah will give us help because they had all the crusaders outside. So Salahuddin did exactly that. And um, subhanallah, he said that dissension overtook the enemy camp from where we got heartening news for the next few days until they broke their camp from Ramla by morning, Monday morning and they departed. So praying to Allah really, really helps. Right, especially in difficult situations. He used to send iced water or ice to his foe, Richard the Lionheart, when he became... Richard Lion was the king of England. He was also one of the guys on the other side. But Salahuddin used to actually send him gifts, fruits and ice when he was sick. So he was really interesting the way he used to deal with his enemies as well. There's numerous stories about that that you, you can read about when you do. On one occasion, an old Christian woman came to him and she was just in huge distress because some guys had uh, kidnapped her daughter, right, her child. In those days, you would kidnap and put them into a slave trade, right? That was the tradition of the time. So, screaming through a flood of tears, she told the Sultan that her baby had been taken away by a band of robbers. And she'd been told that, come to the Khalif and he'll sort, sorry, the Sultan, he'll sort it out for you. He was so touched by her sorrow that he broke into tears. And he sent some people to the slave market, another place to go and make inquiries. And finally, mashallah, her child was brought back. This woman fell prostrate with her head on the ground, uttering something for a very long time. Then she departed, you know, rejoicing at her child's return. I will stop here. There's a lot more to be said about him. Uh, but what I would suggest is that you read about him. And as I've mentioned, the two books, Stanley Lane Pool, is called Saladin. You'll check it online. I think you might even be able to download a PDF. And the other one is by his biographer, official biographer, Muslim Ibn Shaddad, I think, and uh, Bahauddin Ibn Shaddad. And that's been translated into English. Then the third book I would suggest is uh, The Saviors of Islamic Spirit. And the reason I mention this is that this book, the first volume which we published, deals with the first seven centuries of Islam. I read it when I was about 20-something. I wish I'd read it when I was about 14. Reason is that it gives you a lot of hope. Remember I said that when you know history, you can see the cycles of the way humanity works and how things rise and fall. And really, it gives you a lot of hope that you will be able to, you know, there's a downfall, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has always brought it back up. And I think it encourages that, you know, maybe you can be chosen to do some kind of Elevation work to uplift the Muslim community, insha'Allah. So uh, it talks about the down, the ups and downs of the first six, seven. The book continues, but uh, and there's an older translation of the rest of the volumes. But you should definitely try to read the first volume. Really, like if you're interested in the Muslim Ummah and the way things have gone and it's happened, and you want just better perspective and you want some comfort in your heart about the way Allah Subhanahu wa Taala's help comes. I think it's really, really useful to read about our history. So I think I'll stop there. And uh, if anybody has any questions, inshallah. I think one thing which is, uh, 
I mean, we could have a discussion on this, but I think one of the biggest things that uh, as a, the Muslim Ummah is facing right now is disunity. So everybody's worried about their own little turf, right? So I think to try to just, in our own lives, try to not break things apart, but right, try to mend them, because I think it has to start at home. That's the first thing. Number two is to learn the history and to uh, which I just mentioned, re uh, which I just mentioned right now, which is to learn the history, so that we can become better understanding of the way things work in this world. Because when we've been living in in our thirty years, forty years, whatever it is, that's all we know the past of, right? And it's quite depressing sometimes. Personally, uh, you, you know, when when all of this happened was from the nineteen twenties when the caliphate was abolished. So we had literally a continuous caliphate through different dynasties until 1924. That's when it was abolished. I just wonder how the Muslims felt at that time. You know, some of the teachers I studied with, some of the speakers I listened to in the 80s, I used to hear this sentiment from them. It's changed now. Because they just come out of that. So I think uh, we're in a low, but I see, mashallah, lots of upliftment. For example, if you just look at Turkey itself, after 1924, it went down to such a degree that it was secularized completely. And now you see that, mashallah, you know, it's changing. Egypt in the 1950s had been secularized. There was not a woman with hijab, very few. Now you go there, it's over 90% is with hijab. Uh, you go to Uzbekistan and Tajik, uh, uh, Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan and uh, Kazakhstan. Now Uzbekistan, mashallah, it's come out I mean, it was for, again, 70 to 80 years under the Soviets where everything was abolished. It's hap that's happening in China now, in eastern Turkestan. But mashallah, now they've emerged from that and things are getting better. So I see a lot of hope. Yes, we've still got issues in different parts. So I think it's about first learning. And number three, distractions is what is really messing everybody up. Distractions. There's just so much competition out there for our time. Whether that be a, something as simple as YouTube or Facebook or Twitter. Right? And uh, that, and then it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get more, we're only going to get more entangled in the web with the meta universe and things like that as it's coming. So I really think we need to understand for ourselves what our goals in life are. And not just goals in life, but goals for the afterlife. Because once we if our goals are just for this life, then the afterlife does not even figure in that. Because this life comes before the next life, doesn't it? Next 50 years or whatever it is. So if we're planning just for this life, the other life can't even be planned in that, can it? Because this is... It's like, if you're just worried about your years at university, you're not even thinking about afterwards, then you don't even know how it's going to impact afterwards. But if you're thinking from now of where you want to be in 10 years, I want to be in this company, I want to be at this position, I want to be here or there, then that is going to help you, that's going to include decisions about now. So decisions about now cannot include decisions about there unless you make decisions based on what's going to happen later. So if you start focusing on the hereafter that we have to get there eventually as believers, then that's going to help us to adjust our life here. And one of the biggest things I think people are suffering from is, uh, I would say, distractions. Just indulgence and distractions. And I think we're, you know, 30 years ago was a fitna of adversity where people were just struggling to survive. If you look, maybe, 
you know, for most of us grandparents, they were struggling to survive. Now it's a time when, mashallah, we've got a lot of disposable income and thing, instant gratification, things like that. So these are, I guess, some of the things that may have parallels. Because I said, he gave up. He was part of it, but then he gave up. Even drinking, for example. So some of those things you'll have to just learn on the job, while other things we can actually prep for. So sincerity is generally learned on the job. So, for example, before anybody becomes a world leader, they're probably going to have some, you know, when nobody's going to be shot to stardom overnight. You're going to start off with small things. And I'm here just to encourage that maybe, inshallah, one, you know, I don't think it's wrong to be optimistic like that, right? Nobody maybe, but let's think about it. Somebody's going to have to do that encouragement, as far-fetched as it seems. So I would say that you, we first uh, read the biographies. I think they're the most helpful. That's what really helps me. Read the biographies. Learn more about them. right? And then we can understand uh, the characteristics that these people had. And hopefully, in our little uh, scope and circle of influence, we can try to be like that. That's what I think. And slowly, slowly... If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is like, we ask Allah to accept us for service to his deen. That's my dua. Oh Allah, accept me for the service of your deen. What service, I don't know. But oh Allah, whatever, I want to be accepted for some service. So you're going to take it step by step. It's not like, you know, the, the modern world, they want everybody to be leaders and then there's some guys who tell you, like, do you even know how to make your bed at home? Like, let's check your bedroom out. Like, to see if that's tidy. Because people are... In America, it's like that. I don't know about England as much, but I lived in America for eight years. Like everybody wants to be the next sensation, you know, whether that be on YouTube or influence or whatever the case is, right? But it's like, can you even sort out your immediate surrounding? Like, if you can't even have your bedroom to be tidy, then what kind of leadership are you going to do? That's some basic stuff. But the idea is that I think we just need to educate ourselves, right? So while you're studying for, you know, whatever you are studying, you also Continue your connection with the Quran and learn that the hadith of the Prophet so you know your deen I think a lot of people a lot of the reasons why we divide between it, people just don't understand What the religious religion wants from us. Let's take simple examples of people's divorces marriages When I hear the stories because I have to hear them a lot of the time It's just absolute ignorance and then it's ego so it's either ignorance or ego or bad habits like excessive anger or excessive desire, or selfishness, or narcissism, or something like that. So I think we need to work with all of those things, because if we can't maintain a marriage, how are we going to be a leader of the world? You know, for example, um, difficult question, brother, but uh, Allah Ta'ala make it easy. Wow, subhanAllah, Salahuddin had a mother, man. Right? The role of women is that, I mean, I can say the cliched expression that behind every successful man is a, is a woman. I could tell you that. I don't know how you feel about that. But I would say, for example, that I'm here in front of you. My dad plays a part, for sure. But I think my mom plays probably a bigger part. Right? You know, her push and her, her tarbi, I think it just plays a bigger part. Right? Sometimes it is the other way around. But I think what we have to really understand is that while women are needed in the workplace, in, certain, uh, you know, in a number of fields, 
but their primary objective is to bring up that next generation in the right way. Nobody can do it better than women. Like men just can't. They, they play a part. There is probably at least a 30% uh, supplementary, you know, they, 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 there's certain parts only the father can play. But the mother has the bulk of that responsibility and I don't think there's any job greater than that. Don't let anybody tell you that that's not the case. We're living in really weird times where it's about women's liberation, it's about feminism, right? And that goes into a lot of extremes and there's a valid aspect of it. But remember, whatever you do, be successful at whatever you do, but remember you are responsible at the end of the day of bringing up the next generation. Who else is going to do it? Who else is going to do it? If my wife is going and studying or, or, or working and I've got a nanny in the house, why? Why is she looking after somebody else's business or maybe even her own business or whatever and letting somebody else look after our children? Like, why is that right? Why is that even reasonable? That's not right. But mashallah, like, you know, we, we teach, so we have male and female students. I've seen the success is when uh, uh, we have a very intense program for the iftar program. And the, 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 the successful ones are those who, mashallah, uh, had two who were over 40 when they joined and they actually managed to complete the course. They both have children and husbands, obviously, right? But now their children are at an age where they can kind of have a routine and look after themselves. But they focused on their children first. And now, mashallah, Allah has opened the door of them and they've just graduated as, uh, you know, studied the Mufti course as such, which is a huge accomplishment, I think. So I'm definitely not for like saying women just must not, you know, just parents, that's it. But you have to plan things, right? You just have to plan things. And again, you have to have a zeal as well. Like, I want to do this and this is what I want to do. And mashallah, I've, in my life, I've come across some really ambitious women, mashallah. Right? And they're on their trajectory, they're on their, you know, uh, they're, they're good in their family, but they're also, mashallah, doing huge amounts of work outside. Right? It's just that when you fall into the narratives, especially the non-Islamic narratives, then it just, it, it's, a whole, it's a whole test right now. Right? Islam, uh, uh, the, the, this whole thing about postmodernism and all, it's all a test. We, nobody knows where it's going. It keeps getting adjusted. Don't, don't fall for that.